we are back for another episode and it has been a while since it's just been me on the full length episode. So I've had a lot of guests on the podcast, which I absolutely love because they get to bring their knowledge, their areas of expertise, their experiences to you. And I love that it can always be a dynamic conversation. And we have a little bit of a gap in guests right now of a couple are coming up, but I was like, okay, this is the perfect time to do a solo episode with y'all. So one of the things that I have been promising for a while, part of the problem, it's not a problem, but part of the problem is that I get so many inspired ideas from having conversations with y'all and it's like fitting it all in. And even with three episodes a week right now, sometimes I feel like I have so much more to say, which is also where then I get inspired on social media. So if you don't follow me on social media yet, I'm at the period DR period day. So at the Dr. Tay with periods in between, but on Instagram and TikTok, I also post on LinkedIn and Facebook and I'm starting a YouTube account too. So go give me a follow. And if you're finding value, there's more value over there. It's not just a repetition of this podcast, although I definitely promote this podcast on my social media as well because I want to make sure y'all aren't missing an episode. But I know you're here, so more likely than not, this isn't your first episode, but if it is, welcome. So excited to have you here. But let's dive into this topic of early intervention today. Welcome to a parenting space actually designed for you, where you can get answers about navigating a life that includes autism. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental coach specializing in neurodivergent affirming care. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. And I know firsthand the impact autism can have. I was 12 years old when my little brother was diagnosed and my family had to learn how to navigate the autism journey. It wasn't always easy. Two decades later, I now create resources and services I wish my family had, including this podcast, and I developed the whole family approach. On this podcast, of course, we will talk about autism, but we will also talk about your personal growth and well-being as a parent, supporting your non-autistic children, and sharing personal stories of other families so you know you're not alone. Quick disclaimer before we jump into today's episode. Anything shared on this podcast should not be considered clinical advice, and you should consult with your team of medical, mental health, and developmental providers if you need support. So this is something oh, that is, I won't lie, near and dear to my heart. I love it so much. So I've been promising this for a while, and where I really promised that I would do it was in episode 26, Why ABA is Controversial. So we dove into why the autistic community finds ABA problematic, and in that episode, we also talked about how you can advocate that if your child is an ABA or just any care, how you can advocate for more neurodivergent affirming care. So I want to do a follow-up to that episode and really dive in to this idea of early intervention today. Early intervention, What? let's even talk about what is the definition of that? Because I think sometimes that can be confusing, right? I've heard people say before age three, before age five, just starting as soon as possible. All of that, guess what, is true at the end of the day. So I would say this episode is going to be best designed for parents who have a child about five and under. Or if you have an older child, your child isn't speaking in fluent language. Keep in mind, there's many forms of communication, but the specific supports I'm going to talk about today are most relevant for those that language development is still really 
developing and unfolding. I will give a little secret behind the scenes and I recommend this to every family of a young child that I work with. So there is a book called An Early Start for Your Young Child with Autism. It is not the first time that I've mentioned it on the podcast, I will go ahead and link that in the show notes. So you can go grab that from Amazon. And I will tell you, it breaks support strategies down in such a beautiful way. And here is the thing. Let's talk about what I guess I believe early intervention should look like. And here's the thing too, is I might listen to this episode a year from now and pivot even more. I've pivoted over time. And a large reason I'm pivoting is listening to the autistic community and making sure too that I'm constantly educating myself to be providing neurodivergent affirming care and what that looks like. But ultimately, I am practicing in this realm as a psychologist because this is an area I support and I just, I love supporting little kids. They've always, I love kids of all ages and autistic children hold a special place in my heart, but I would say the youngest kids, it just is, can be really rewarding to watch. And I think parents also, they're still navigating and learning how to figure out their child at that age. And so being able to provide so many answers in a fast paced way has been so incredibly rewarding. So the type of intervention I do is called NDBIs, Naturalistic Developmental Behavioral Interventions. And yes, there is behavioral in this. So for those of you that, you know, have educated yourself on ABA, you know, what that largely is based on is behaviorism of like reinforcement and punishment. And I wouldn't say that's the exact form here. And we also have to keep in mind that Behaviors are reinforced naturally all the time, whether or not we intend to. So there are some behavioral principles, but really at its core, what NDBIs are doing, and again, that book I mentioned uses this approach, is it's really about being as naturalistic as possible, meaning you are not having set aside early intervention time or we're not having set aside therapy time. There might be, some of your therapies might be like that, but largely speaking is you're embedding support strategies into everyday activities. So we'll talk about in a second what that looks like. And it really is meant to flow with your day. Research has shown that the quote unquote optimal amount of early intervention is 25 hours per week. And so parents hear that and they're like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get all of that in? But it's important to keep in mind that is everything that you are doing to support your child. That includes speech and OT. That includes if your child's in an educational setting. That also includes these small little strategies you can embed into their everyday activities. And what it largely is focused on is teaching you as the parent how to enter your child's world. And that is what I think is so incredibly beautiful is it's not about having your child conform or comply in a certain way, in a quote unquote neurotypical way, but rather it's noticing what's important to them. It's entering their world. It is imitating them all these different really beautiful strategies that you're already interacting with your child. And just by small little tweaks, you can really help to get more connection with them and also help to promote their development at an even faster pace because this is where that behavioral piece comes in. When something is attended to, it's reinforced. And when it's reinforced, then it's more likely to happen. For example, 
if your child is starting to do some signs and you are acknowledging them, responding to them, then that is being reinforced. And then they're going to be more likely to do those signs, right? So if they're trying to request more for crackers and you recognize that and acknowledge that and you give them a cracker, they're going to be more inclined to use that sign of more and by sign like baby sign language to do that again when they want crackers or when they want something else. And so this is where that behavioral aspect comes in. It also allows your family to still be a family without constantly feeling like you need to sit down and do this intervention time. And what's beautiful about this is you can use these same skills with your non-autistic children or your neurotypical children, and it will help to promote their development too and advance their development. And you can also teach, especially like older children, you can teach them how to do some of this. And that also is allowing them to be part of this, which As a sibling, if you don't know my story, my brother was diagnosed at 23 months of age, went through intensive early intervention, and I was pretty separated from it. Just at the time, he did ABA therapy and just at the time how things went, but the more that you can fold in your non-autistic children, that can be so beautiful. So let's talk about some examples now. I've been talking more about the the conceptualization of this. Actually, before we go to examples, I want to say this because I think this is really important. So there is a misconception out there that if your child doesn't develop language before age five, that they're never going to develop language. And I want to talk about where that actually comes from. And it's relevant to this topic of conversation since we're talking about early intervention. So where this actually comes from is that It's like old school development research, all of that is basically the brain does have critical windows for being able to learn things. And basically someone came out and said, yep, your child's brain does grow fastest in the first five years of life. It's growing most rapidly and then brain development slows down. And it's, oh, because of that like critical window, you've missed that your child is never going to speak. And that definitely is a very old school mentality. We see so many stories of kids that later begin speaking. There's also a piece, which I'm not going to fully go down the rabbit hole here, but I want to acknowledge of Speaking isn't the only mode of communication either. And so I think sometimes we can get hyper fixated on hitting that milestone, but your child might be trying to communicate with you in so many different ways. So basically it's like this old school mentality, but I actually was listening to the Uniquely Human podcast recently and I loved how they explained it. So I'm going to actually use their analogy. I want to give credit where credit is due. That basically it's the concept if we think about learning a second language, we know that learning additional languages that it's easiest for children to learn in early childhood, again, because of this brain development piece. But what the critical window theory would say of like with language development, like if your child is non-speaking and they don't speak by age five, they're not going to speak. It's like, oh, well, you missed the window. It's easiest to learn in this quote unquote critical window, but it's not anywhere near impossible outside of this window. I learned how to speak Spanish in high school. 
I wish I kept on it because I don't remember a lot. I can understand it now. I definitely can't speak it. But so many of you learned a language in high school, right? Or kids will learn languages later. Or actually, Dr. Carrie Jackson, who was on the podcast recently on an episode about ADHD, she and I were chatting. She's learning Spanish right now as an adult. And so it is possible. And the same thing is that idea of, okay, if we can learn other languages, your child can also learn quote unquote other languages. And the other language is speaking, like physically using their words out loud in this neurotypical form of communication, they can learn it. So I also don't want you to have this pressure because I've heard this time and time again that you have to do early intervention and you have to hit it hard in order for your child to quote unquote, be okay. And that concept actually comes from old school mentality as well. And that was something growing up, my family really experienced is we'll do early intervention. So basically it's this idea of curing autism or getting rid of the label or in the research literature for a while, they were calling it an optimal outcome, all old school at this point, right? We know autism is a lifelong disability. And also there's times that it's going to impact your child more than others. And largely one of the biggest reasons it impacts them the most is because our world isn't designed for neurodivergent individuals. It's designed for neurotypical individuals. And the more that we increase acceptance, the more that we will start to see it not impacting as much, if that makes sense. But we aren't fixing or curing or trying to get rid of. And so this idea that you have to hit it hard in this early intervention window comes from that. And I just want to remind you, your kid's brain is always going to be growing and evolving. Did you know, like, even like in your 80s, actually, we talked about this on the episode with Dr. Abby Jones about executive functioning, like you literally can change your brain wiring in like in your in your 80s, right? There's nothing stopping you from doing that. It's more the input that you're giving. Your child's brain is always developing. There's always time for them to learn skills. So take off some of that pressure. And I think this is what's really important. And listen, y'all, I have my own business. So I get this in some regards, but I will never market for the benefit of my business in sacrifice of what a child needs. I do think with ABA, there's a little bit of this marketing ploy going on. I'm just going to say it where they strike on this urgency need of we got to hit this hard now. And they are businesses at the end of the day. All therapists are part of some business. And I want you to keep that in mind. And I say that like as candidly as I can, because yes, I have my own practice. I run my own business. And, you know, that's how I am able to make money and support myself. And at the same time, we need to be really honest and open. And a marketing ploy should not be the reason you do something. It's actually taking that step back of, is this in support of your child? And I think sometimes ABA marketing plays on the emotions of parents of you're going to miss this window. You got to do something now. And while I, I very strongly believe in early intervention in the sense of if you have concerns about your child trying to get an evaluation for autism as soon as possible so you can start to understand how their brain works and we can start to support them in the way that they need to be supported. I do think that is important. But I also, if 
and I, I would guess not many parents at this point that didn't do early intervention would get to this point in the episode, but you never know. And if you are one of those, I want to remind you, you didn't miss any window. There's no critical window and you're here learning and growing and evolving now. And I think that's so incredibly beautiful. And so release some of this, like this burden that you got to do something, you got to respond in a certain way. And just know, like, ultimately, the thing that we know is the most important predictor for child success is parental involvement and parental involvement, having high quality of being there, being present, being loving, being supportive. And I'm telling you, if you're listening to this podcast right now, I don't even know how far into this episode we are, but I know for a fact you have that or you wouldn't be listening right now. And so that is the most important predictor of success. And I'm not going to define success here because that that's a whole nother topic, right? But I'm not talking about curing autism. You're never going to hear that on this podcast, but success is still important for your child, but it's also making sure we don't measure their success by neurotypical standards. All right, so that's a lot of the background, right? But I think that background was really important so that you don't go into this episode, we're into this episode, into this episode, but you don't go into these strategies and feel like, oh my gosh, I have to do all of this. If anything, I want you to take maybe one strategy that you're like, hey, I can try that. So I'm not gonna be able to talk about all of them today. And like I said, grab the book, An Early Start for Your Young Child with Autism, linked in the show notes. And- Start reading and you're going to read through chapter by chapter. So basically the first three chapters are all background information. And I will say even, I don't remember when that book was published, but there's some outdated things in there with regard to autism conceptualization and all of it. So take it with a grain of salt, but I do love the way that they describe support. So chapter four starts with the supports and I believe it goes through chapter 13, but you have to go in order. And it's not a book you binge where you're like, you can initially, but then I would go back and actually execute. It's an execution book. So you're going to read a chapter. It's going to tell you you how to practice these things. It gives beautiful examples of different kids that the therapists have worked with and all of that. Real quick, just a brief interruption, because I want you to know you don't have to navigate this journey alone. If you're in a place where you have concerns about your child's development, you've been on the search for a therapist that provides evidence-informed neurodivergent affirming care, or you're needing more support as a parent, the whole family approach may be a good fit for you. Autism doesn't just impact your child's life, so you deserve care that works for your child and your whole family. Head to the link in the show notes to schedule a complimentary call where we can chat about your unique circumstances. We can help you decide if Dr. Tay concierge clinical care would be a good fit for your family. And if not, we will provide you resources for your next best steps. I also will link now that I'm thinking about it in the show notes too, and I'm going to forget what the website is called, but there is a website with videos as well that's related to this Early Start Denver model curriculum. It's a form of NDBIs. I know I'm throwing a lot of acronyms, but this like naturalistic uh, developmental behavioral intervention, and that's what they talk about in this book. Okay, so let's talk about strategies finally, and then we will wrap up this episode. So one of the most important things, and you will read about this in the book, and different modalities will call this different things, but it's this idea of being in your child's attentional zone, of staying in their spotlight. So what this actually looks like is if they are sitting, if you're trying to engage with them where you're standing over top of them, 
that that physical distance, it makes it even harder for them to engage. And so it's about getting on their level. And then it's also about getting in that zone of where their eye contact is. And we're not requiring eye contact. That's a really, again, I'm talking about a lot of old school things here, but I think it's important to know forcing eye contact. We are never going to do that. But if we are in their attentional zone, it's going to be so much easier, especially as we're working on communication for them to be able to shift their attention to you. And so what I almost want you to think of is their little eyeballs have spotlights on them. And if you think about a spotlight, it starts like thin and then it spreads out. That's how this works. So you're trying to be face-to-face with them as much as you can. And when you're playing with them, that becomes really important. Another like critical strategy, and it talks about this a little bit later, but you could start this now imitating them. Imitating your child is one of the most important things you can do for language development. So often we're so focused on what they're saying and how we can progress their language, but this is some of it is like, what are they doing? Can we reinforce that? So what this looks like, I actually have a reel on this too, but is basically if they're like, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. I want you to be like, ah, yeah. And imitate them back. And you can do it where you're directly imitating them. Or you can also do it with where you're like, yeah, and adding to it. But I actually would start with the direct imitation first. Because right now we're not trying to shape language. We simply are trying to allow them to understand that we hear them and that we're recognizing that communication bid. So I love describing it, the analogy of they're just speaking a different language than you can understand. But if you're in a foreign country and you don't know the language, there's ways that you still can show someone you're with them. And one of the ways that you can show your child that you're with them is by imitating their language. Another thing that I want you to do is modeling simple language. So sometimes, and it's so well-intentioned actually. So Really, I want, there's two parts to this. So the first part is if you're not even doing this, let's talk about narration. This idea of describing what they're doing, you are exposing them to language. It's almost as if you're like a sports announcer describing what sport, the sport and what's going on. You are going to feel ridiculous doing this. Who am I talking to? This feels so weird, but it's so important. Now, That's the first key, right? And then sometimes what I see is parents using their full language abilities to be the narrator. And so I want you to really simplify it. So let me give you an example of this. If your child is taking cars and running them down a ramp, right? Narration, and this works for older kids for sure, but might look like, Narration that maybe isn't as optimal, it's still better than nothing. Let me just say this, but it might look like, oh, look at that car, vroom, it's going down the ramp, it's going, it's spinning up, up, and there it goes. It came out lots and lots of language. Your child's brain isn't going to process all of that in order for them to be able to repeat it back. And so real quick aside. We know that the majority of autistic children are what are called gestalt language processors or GLPs. Go do a Google search. But basically, 
analytical language development goes from basically babbling to word approximations, to single words, to two word phrases, to adding the length of the phrases gets longer, to sentences, to complexity. That's how neurotypical individuals learn language and what we call analytical language learners. The majority of autistic children's language does not develop like that. Actually, how it develops is with gestalt. So gestalts are things that they hear other people say, and they're imitating it back. So sometimes too, we can think of this as scripting or what we call echolalia. And it's, oh no, that's not functional language. I don't want to acknowledge that. You actually do because you want to reinforce their language attempts. Because what we see is they start with these gestalts and then they over time, as they're gaining a repertoire of them, then they start to generalize what they've learned into things like single words. And that's then where you see language progress. But it's not this linear fashion that we see in analytical language learners. Again, the large majority of neurotypical people, to my understanding, I'm not a speech language pathologist, but are analytical language learners. And so this is also something for you to keep in mind is there's a high likelihood your child is a gestalt language processor. So what this means is we want to actually give them the things that they can repeat back, that they can imitate. And even if they're not imitating you right now, that exposure is important. So it's called a gestalt. So for example, with this car, broom, that's literally all you might have to do, but that's going to help them to then have this like car, broom. And it's simple enough that as their imitation skills build, which there's lots of ways you can support that too. We won't fully dive into that today because there's some complexity to it, but that book will dive into it. But as their imitation builds, the ability for them then to be able to repeat that much more likely than if you're giving a full long sentence. So what we say too is really you want to do what we call one word up for the most part. So if your child has single words, I want you focusing on a lot of two word phrases. But I also think one of the things this book doesn't take into mind and in this specific intervention approach is Gestalt language processors. I I have kids that have Gestalt language processing that maybe have some single words, but aren't speaking in like phrases yet, but they'll repeat full sentences from like movies, for example, or from like animal books, like with sounds and things like that. Cow, moo, moo. And then they learn that a cow says moo. And so it's a way for them to learn. So keep your language simple, but also keep in mind that your child might naturally also start to pick up longer gestalts. And so you can play around with this as you're starting to notice them imitating. But right now with wherever their language development is, you really want to do one word more. So if they have two word phrases, more cookies, want juice, mama, bye-bye, things like that, you might start to go, mama, go bye-bye or I want juice, things like that. So you're making it slightly more complex for them. The last piece I feel like I'm going to dive into, and then we'll wrap this up. Pausing and slowing down is your best friend. Let me say that again. Pausing and slowing down is your best friend. So here's the thing. A lot of times as adults, we over support a child just naturally, right? We're trying to help them, but we don't actually give them a lot of time to initiate. And so I actually want you slowing down where there are pauses. So for example, 
this is another strategy. I love doing forced choices with visuals. So if you have strawberries and raspberries, it might, and I know you guys, I'm not on camera. You might go, do you want strawberries and hold that in one hand and holding it up or raspberries, strawberries or raspberries. What does tend to happen a lot of times, it's like repeating it. Strawberries, raspberries, which one do you want? And you're not giving your child's brain time to think through that. And granted, that's a response and not an initiation, but still sometimes then we end up being like, oh, okay, you're guessing and then giving it to them, which maybe they're trying to actually, if they have the verbal ability, maybe they're actually trying to form that. And then you're rushing that process. So what this might look like, do you want strawberries or raspberries? Yes, this break is intentionally silent. Okay. And it's going to feel awkward. You're going to feel like, oh my gosh, this is moving so slow. But it does a couple things. It's communicating a space for your child to be able to add to the interaction. It's also giving their brain time to think and process. And this slow pace is going to be the most supportive over them. If you're constantly fast paced, it's going to be harder for them to learn in that. So keeping in mind too, their receptive language ability isn't going to be what your expressive language ability is. And so if we're constantly feeding them information, That's like putting their brain on overdrive. It's like when you try to do too many things on a computer at once and the computer like slows down and freezes, you're giving too much input and then the computer becomes overwhelmed. But that's what can happen with your child's brain. So lots of pauses, lots of slowing down. You also, as you start to develop routines for your child, so this is another thing is if you know that your child is starting to, for example, do the more sign, which I love baby signs, some basic ones like more, please, potty, things like that. You can just Google those, but if they're starting to do them, don't prompt them right away. Oh, do you want more? Just sit there and wait and allow them to initiate that they want more. And also, I said that was the last one, but this one I think is actually the most important. And I don't know how I didn't mention this sooner. I want you to make sure you are acknowledging all forms of communication. So what this also means is don't hold this high expectation of only waiting for the verbal ability, of waiting for them to actually speak words. Are there other ways that they're telling you that they want more? Are there other ways that they're trying to engage you? Let me give some examples of this. It might look like, you know, that they're staring at their food and they look up at you. I want you to reinforce that, right? So that's an example of eye contact. We're not forcing them to make eye contact, but if they make eye contact, let's respond to it. That often I see, and I understand the desire in this, but parents are waiting for more complex communication and we're missing the simple communication. So what I mean by complex versus simple, complex is combining multiple forms of communication, potentially verbal and nonverbal communication, or just forms of nonverbal Example, they're signing more and you're waiting for them to look at you. If we don't have the baseline skill yet of just that simple form of communication and we haven't reinforced that, then expecting more is just going to create that frustration. And so I want you to work on one thing at a time initially. So are they looking from their food or for example, are they like rolling their cars and then they pause 
maybe they're waiting for you and you're, you're missing that queuing. So you can jump in and jumping in doesn't mean physically taking over. It could be car room, something like that. And that can be a sign of communication. Also, they might be trying to make a vocal sound and we are ignoring that because it's not quote unquote the word. Or also maybe they are reaching towards something and Yes, sometimes this is unclear in the beginning and you're going to play a little bit of a guessing game, but play that guessing game. Let them know that you see what they want. Acknowledge that. Or this is actually one I, I see a good bit is that kids will bring a toy over and they're not going to look at the parent. They're not going to say anything to the parent, but they literally drop the toy in the parent's lap because they want the parent to do something with that toy again. And so acknowledging that is a form of communication. And if we wait for higher levels of communication, what's going to happen is a lot of frustration. And so this is also what I mean when I say all behavior is a form of communication, that meltdown, they are communicating to you. And more likely than not, we missed these, what we call these early bids, these early signs of how they were trying to communicate with you. All right, y'all. That was a lot for this episode, but I think it was a really important topic. I, yeah, I love doing early intervention work and just being able to support families in this way and watch kids progress and doing it in a really naturalistic way. I guess I didn't talk about embedding it into every day activity. So let me touch on that really quick. And then we really will wrap up. So I want you working on these skills during all activities in the bath, for example, can you imitate them? Can make sure you're facing them and down on their level. Don't stand over top of them in the bathtub and bathe them actually get down, kneel in front of them. Can you also add some pauses in? You're, maybe you're playing a simple tickle game and you can do that in the back. You can do that when changing their diaper and then pause and wait. So diaper changing, bath time, also things like meal time. That's a great opportunity to offer, offer forced choices of do you want this or this and getting that communication going. And then we also want two types of play going on. We want toy play happening, but we also want we, what we call more sensory social activities. This is a lot of like songs and tickling games and nursery rhymes and making animal sounds. So you're not having a lot of toys. I will say that autistic children, that's usually where we want to start and working on it is trying to get them engaged in more of these like social activities where there's not toys that are also creating additional stimulation. And we see great responses there. The other thing is don't be afraid to give your child chores and have them part of what you're doing. For example, and I will say toddlers will do this, feeding the dog, watering the plants. What I'm going to tell you is all of this is going to take longer if you're having your child's help, but it's allowing them to be part of the interaction. And then if you're modeling all this social communication and responding to them, that becomes so incredibly important. And then, yeah, changing the laundry from the washer to the dryer, it might be handing them one wet thing, they throw it into the dryer. And there are also skills that are building beyond social communication here. For example, 
touching wet things. That might be a little bit of a sensory discomfort for your child, but it's exposing them to that that and realizing, okay, they're okay. But if they're more motivated, they're going to be willing to do that. It also can work on things like fine motor and gross motor and their cognitive development. There's so many ways in which this all is supporting their development overall. So don't be afraid to let them be part of those everyday activities, integrating them in. And it also is going to feel generally more supportive for your family as well, integrating your other kids, doing the same things with your non-autistic children or the children that aren't in early intervention, but also like they can, for example, do turn-taking with their autistic sibling and be part of all of that. And turn-taking is something that's discussed in great detail in the book. The other piece I know I keep saying, how many times can I wrap up this episode, y'all? But if you can't tell, this is such a passion for me, but I really promise this is all, is in terms of what we'd call like the classic in terms of diagnostic criteria, restrictive repetitive behaviors, things like stimming, we're going to let them stim because it is regulatory. So we're not trying to interrupt or interrupt that process. We can talk about ways that we can support their transitions, but I also want you to use their interests to help enter their world. If they're already motivated by this thing, use that. Because if they're motivated, then it's going to be so much easier for you to enter into their world. The one exception to this, I would say, is if they're, I find, and the book talks about this as well, many kids, especially early on, those the toys that have lights and sounds on them and kids will press them repetitively, sometimes those can be really hard. It's like you're competing for attention with those and trying to reduce those as much as possible. But for example, if your child loves dinosaurs and they're lining up their dinosaurs, how can you enter that interaction with them? All right. I hope that was helpful and explained a way that you can do early intervention that's going to be supportive for your autistic child. It provides neurodivergent affirming care. It addresses a lot of the concerns that the autistic community has raised. And I'll be honest, you'll still see some things that the autistic community might not love about NDBIs as well. That's definitely possible. And this is where we can listen and learn. And then I recommend as a parent, you are following your gut. Does this feel right in doing this method with your child and this approach with your child? But ultimately, I think this is really about promoting their strengths, entering their world and making sure that we're acknowledging all forms of communication. All right, y'all, that is a wrap and I will talk to you soon. Bye. Before we wrap up this episode, for real this time, I wanna share a couple ways you can get even more value and what your next steps could be. First, join the Evolve Facebook group. We do Q and A's about the episodes and so much more. I linked that group, my personal social media pages and any resources I mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So scroll down now and join me online. When you submit questions on any of my pages, your question could be featured on this podcast. How cool is that? I love being able to speak on topics that feel directly relevant to your life. Your questions truly make a difference in the content we create here. One last thing, do your fellow autism parents a favor. Share this episode on your social media and tag me. Autism currently affects one in 36 families in the United States and many more worldwide. So I'm sure there is a parent in your social media followers that could be served by this podcast. Thank you again for being here. And I'm so grateful we shared this time together. Bye y'all.